Can I ask you what your lucky numbers are? Uh, I'm going to pick 14, 24, 2, 7, and 15. Oh, those are your lucky numbers. Do you know your chances of winning? Slim to none. Slim to none. You're right. Let me tell you, it's one out of 292 million. What do you think about that? I knew it. You knew it. <laughs> your, your numbers are lucky, though. Am I right? I hope so. I hope so. Can I ask you, if you won all the money, what would you do with it? Bunch of hookers and cocaine. Oh, okay. That's not good. <laughs> we were hoping for a different answer. That's probably not the answer that we're looking for. All right. Yes, I'd saved money. I was living incredibly cheaply. I was enjoying free meals courtesy of WeWork. And you're selling yourself for sexual favors in order to keep the company going? Yeah. I don't think people would ever pay me for that. They couldn't fathom how for seven of the eight years I've been running Karenware, I had a condo and was renting out the second bedroom to friends to help me cover a lot of my expenses. One thing that everyone hates talking about and I hate it the most because I'm really bad at it is... Don't get me wrong, I hate it, but if I'm not going to do it, then no one else is going to do it. And I think that's the other thing about being a founder is you have to lead by example. First of all, thank you so much for having me on here today. Really excited to share our story. My name is Chat Razdan. I am 38 years old and based in New York, New York. And my company is Karenware, and we are bringing fashion into healthcare and helping you with what you wear inside and outside of the hospital. And so how big is your company today? We're a team of about 15 people, so still very lean and helping both patients and clinicians with what they wear in and out of the hospital. Today, we sell online on our own website. We work with other big retailers like Amazon. We actually recently launched with CVS. So in over 800 CVS locations around the country, and then sell directly to over 80 hospital systems and governments where our products are provided to patients and clinicians in need. And so how much in like revenue have you done over the last year or total? We don't really share financial information, but what I can share is in 2020, we publicly stated that we delivered over 15 million units to people in need. And we're just excited to be able to make a difference. And so when I go to your website, it looks like these kind of outfits, they're better looking, I don't know, scrubs or more comfortable scrubs than maybe they normally get the doctors or the nurses. Or can you just expand a little bit more exactly what care and where is? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the most important thing to understand is historically, no one's really ever designed a product with the patient and clinician in mind. Really, the driving force has been what costs us the least to produce, and let's get that out to those in need. And I think what we're trying to do is obviously keep costs low. We take pride in the fact that Many of our products are cheaper or the same price as what you historically have been able to get, but also bring in that sense of fashion and design, really providing dignity and support to both patients and clinicians. From a patient standpoint, having a patient gown where your backside's no longer exposed in the hospital is something that no one historically had ever really tried to solve for. And we're really thrilled to be able to provide millions of patients with covered backsides now. And from a clinician side, it's people have designed historically, maybe for like scrubs in a runway, et cetera, but no one's really thought about the fact that you're walking around, you're on your feet for 12 plus hours and trying to design that with your comfort and providing pockets everywhere that you would need it, 
We actually just launched a two-pocket top for doctors so that they can tuck it in in the operating room and really just trying to make it as comfortable as possible for those in need. And today we're continuing to evolve and continuing to build great products and excited to be able to help as many people as possible. So did you used to be a doctor or you used to be a fashion designer? Which one? Actually, the answer is none of the above. So I probably took I like to joke that I add no value to the business. I'm a former strategy consultant and investment banker. So began my career working for Kearney as a strategy consultant. And then after getting my MBA, spent time at Goldman as an investment banker. And really, Karenware came out of my desire to help my loved ones. At no point while I was starting it did I think, oh, here's a cool company that I'm going to work on. But rather, it came out of a need. I had loved ones being told to wear socks on their arms. Now, could you imagine fighting cancer and then being told, hey, wear this sock on your arm while you're going through treatment over the next four to six months? And I know that I was just flabbergasted that that was the best solution out there. And I wanted to do something to improve that. And so I ended up working with nurses and doctors from Johns Hopkins and UVA to try and redesign the tube sock. And kind of while we were doing that, I took a step back and realized whenever you go to the hospital, everything has always been focused on function and not necessarily on how it looks or how it makes you feel. And really just wanted to build a brand focused on enabling you to feel like a person again. Over the years, we've been able to add products. We've been able to help millions of people and really kind of never going to stop until we're helping every single person with every potential need out there. So when did you actually end up starting the company? So I actually started the company about eight years ago, came up with the idea in February 2014, legally incorporated it in April of 2014. And then I quit my job and started doing it full time in May of 2014. Wow, that was a big year. Yeah. You know, on top of that, I also turned 30 that year. So everyone jokes about buying a Chevy Camaro for your midlife crisis. And apparently mine was, hey, I'm not doing enough in the world and wanting to do something to help others. So you're only trying to live to be 60? Yeah, it's a good point. My math was a little <laughs> off there. Well, I call it like, I think after college, I started calling it a quarter life crisis. We're trying to get you to 120. Yes, perfect. Okay. And so, yeah, you started that, like you said, about eight years ago. And again, it all started with the idea of who in your family had cancer that they were told to have a sock on their arm and you thought that someone should be able to do better? Yeah, I had several people around me that were wearing socks on their arms. So over the course of two weeks, I saw three people wearing socks on their arms. And that caused me to kind of scratch my head and try and do something better. And I think that's an important lesson that when you set your mind to it, if you see a problem, regardless of whether you have any idea of what you're doing or not, if you work on it and you get the right people around you, you can really make anything happen. And I know that sounds super cheesy. And don't worry, I'm actually very full of a lot of cheesy sayings and motivations. But for me, it truly was just trying to help my loved ones around me. And as that's grown, we've been able to help even more and more people throughout the world. All right. Well, keep those motivations coming. Like I said, I like hearing it, like what motivates some of our entrepreneurs or, mm -hmm. you know, because like for me, sometimes what I've even done is cut things out and put it on a wall or whatever to remind me, inspire me to keep going and whatnot. And I think that's why people listen is hear these stories. So anything, any tidbits you have along the way, even if you think they're cheesy, then let's hear them. But what's kind of crazy though, too, you said you came out of investment banking and then kind of started this. Yeah. Well, even when you saw the first person with the sock on their arm, 
who would have ever thought at that point, I don't think you would have thought that you would have started a company just because you saw a sock on somebody's arm. No, I uh, honestly, when I started the company, I wasn't working on it at the beginning with the thought that this is a company. And the funniest part about that is I had been working on like five other ideas that I thought had opportunities. And if anyone wants a free idea, one of them would be, I'm sure this is about to become a problem again when hopefully, knock on wood, we come out of a COVID world. But the amount of time it takes to be able to pick up your lunch or dinner, just lines and waiting in lines was an issue that I really wanted to try and solve. And I was trying to solve like the ways for restaurant, like quick service restaurants and stuff. So if the Chipotle line was too long, I could go to, I don't know, Pret instead or something like that. I've since learned that that's probably a massive first world problem and not something that would have kept me up and made me inspired to wake up every day. And that's probably why I didn't pursue that. But this was the complete opposite, where it was truly just to help my loved ones around me and trying to do whatever we could to help them. And then as I started building it and as I started spending more and more time on it, and then honestly, as I started talking to more and more people, I realized that this is an even bigger problem than anything I had ever thought of and realized, hey, this is an opportunity to try and make a difference in the world. And I always go back to the Gandhi quote of being the change that you wish to see in the world. And I felt like this is something that I could do where we could bring dignity, we could bring comfort and support back into healthcare and allow you to feel like a human again. And there wasn't anything in the world that I felt would inspire me more than being able to do that. What were some of your other ideas? So in business school, again, on the line part, we had created an app that allowed you to open and close your bar and restaurant tab from your phone. I've had a lot of stuff in the sports sphere. I'm a avid fan. I am a pretend athlete where I was always best at tennis, but trying to solve for better products or better ways to train and things like that. At one point, I was work talking to a friend about just scheduling for like PTs and gyms and things like that. Again, nothing that I felt I could really add a lot of value or passion behind. Yeah, thanks for even sharing some of that because we're about to get into your story and you know how you started this successful company. But I think a lot of entrepreneurs, you have all these ideas. Anyone listening might have a several and they just kind of aren't working. And then you finally get hit with the one that actually ends up working. So it's always like, just because you started the other one doesn't mean you can't you know, quit that the line thing. If you don't have enough energy to want to do it, then you're never going to be successful at it because you need that energy to keep you getting up and wanting to go after it. And company that you started, kind of you had a, some passion behind it. And I think that's always helpful when they say do something that you're kind of passionate on, because if you don't have the energy to keep doing it, you're never going to be as successful as someone who is as excited about, you know, getting wait times down in lines or something like that. Right. So it's important to always think about that. Anyone who's listening now, I think. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that people don't realize is overnight success is incredibly rare. And so you need something that you're going to be willing to wake, like work on until one or two in the morning that you're going to be willing to then wake up at five in the morning right after. And I think that that's something that most people don't give enough credibility or credence to. And being at a startup is a massive roller coaster, right? And I think everyone talks about that, but no one really understands it. There's about 9 billion wins and 9 billion losses every day. And the, the key is what I always tell people is you kind of want to follow that mantra of two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back, etc. where over time you're continuing to go forward and you're continuing to make progress. And I think you do whatever it takes to get there. You 
pay yourself really poorly. You cut costs wherever you can. I was actually with a friend for drinks recently, and they couldn't fathom how for seven of the eight years I've been running Karenware, I had a condo and was renting out the second bedroom to friends to help me cover a lot of my expenses. And I viewed it as a win because it allowed me to pursue my passion. It also made me more social and just have a force friend for better or worse. But it really enabled me to spend more time on Karenware and not worry about the financial aspects of my living situation. And now I am finally living alone in my two bedroom. But you know, you got to be willing to make every sacrifice possible. And you only want to do that for something that you're really, really passionate and excited about. So you're saying the way for me to actually make friends is I should start renting out my extra bedroom? Yeah, exactly. I mean, really good friends. A lot of guys that I'm still in touch with, I have gotten to do really cool things with, and it's fun to see how they've all grown as well. It's funny when I always look back, it's like, when I've had the least amount of money, whether you're in college or coming out of college or whatever, it's always kind of when I've been like happiness to an extent or like having roommates because you have that social interaction. I think a lot of us, especially over the last couple of years, have all of us have had less social interaction, you know, and I think that's important for almost all of us to be happy is to have that. So I think it's a good idea if, you know, you're trying to start your own business and it's kind of a win-win where you said if you can make a little bit extra money by renting out an extra bedroom, well, it also makes for more fun experiences and whatnot. Instead of watching Netflix, maybe you can actually talk to your roommate or something like that, you know? Yeah. Or you can just watch Netflix together and then you get the best of both worlds. No, I'm kidding. I absolutely agree. I think it's nice to have someone that doesn't live and breathe your business like you do to be able to talk through and to be able to kind of pick their brains and just learn from them and what they're going through. And I think that the more people you can surround yourself with, the better. And what was the magic of WeWork in the early days was having so many people together. We were there for the first, I want to say, six years of our company's life. And to their credit, they gave us free rent for the first two years. So kind of hard to say no to free. That's why they went out of business. Yeah, probably. <laughs> You're giving free rent for two years? Jesus. I was thinking of, and they were giving like, I mean, literally in the early days, you could survive without, I mean, they were providing breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. It was great. Venture capital money gone bad, I guess. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. There's plenty of documentaries if you want to learn more about WeWork. But no, I think all bad jokes aside, it was an incredible opportunity to build and get to make great friends and be part of an amazing community. And today I'm still friends with a lot of the founders that in the early days were in WeWork rolling up our sleeves together. And it's really fun now to see each other doing well and being able to support each other's companies and businesses and know that we were able to really learn from each other and push each other. And don't get me wrong, some companies have gone under, some have sold, etc. But it's just the experiences that we all were able to go through together is something that I really cherish and am forever grateful for. By now, you've probably heard all about cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin. You might even already be investing in them. But did you know that you could invest in cryptocurrencies through your retirement account? That's right. With iTrust Capital, you can buy and sell cryptocurrencies from a crypto IRA and get all the same tax advantages as a traditional IRA. iTrust Capital allows you to invest in over two dozen of the most popular cryptocurrencies. And unlike the stock market, you can buy and sell 24 hours a day. 
the iTrust Capital platform is easy to use. And it only takes a few minutes to create your own account. Setting up an IRA is free and iTrust fees are low. It's time to start taking control of your financial future. With iTrust Capital, you can get all the tax benefits of a retirement account while investing in crypto. Visit itrust.capital forward slash ESI and start investing today. That's itrust.capital forward slash ESI. Taxes and conditions may apply. Fees apply. Cryptocurrencies are a speculative investment with risk of loss. iTrust Capital Incorporated does not provide legal investment or tax advice. Consult with a qualified legal investment or tax professional. With the rising cost of living, the ever-increasing cost of going to college, and the insane cost of buying a house, you just don't want to leave your kids or partner with a huge financial burden. And on that note, it makes sense why people get life insurance, especially term coverage, which is surprisingly affordable. Why not pay a bit each month to protect the ones you love? If you're asking yourself this question, choose Ladder. Ladder is 100% digital. No doctors, no needles, no paperwork. When you apply for three million in coverage or less, just answer a few questions about your health in an application. You just need a few minutes and a phone or laptop to apply. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out if you're instantly approved. No hidden fees. Cancel anytime. Get a full refund if you change your mind in the first 30 days. Ladder policies are issued by insurers with long, proven histories of paying claims. They're rated A and A plus by AM Best. Ladder's customers rate them 4.8 out of 5 on Trustpilot, and they made Forbes Best Life Insurance 2021 list. Finally, since life insurance costs more as you age, now's the time to cross it off your list. So go to ladderlife.com slash millionaire today see if you're instantly approved that's l-a-d-d-e-r-l-i-f-e dot com slash millionaire ladderlife.com slash millionaire is there anything else we should know about care and wear before we rewind to how you got started even before care and wear yeah, I think at the end of the day, one of the most important elements that I think is, well, a lot of people, especially in the fashion world, want to have their final product, right? Like they make a garment, they say, this is what it's going to be, and we're going to make 5 billion of these going forward. And I think where we really differentiate is we kind of take the Google approach. And if you remember in the early days, Gmail used to keep beta in their logo. In fact, I think they kept it in their logo for like five years. So they were offering their services to hundreds of millions of people and still calling it beta. And what we did is kind of take that similar approach where I tell every patient, every clinician, every hospital system that we don't believe in a final version. At Karen, where we're always looking to improve, we're always looking to iterate our products. And I actually would think it's a massive failure if five years from now, the product hasn't changed at all, because that means we haven't listened to our users, we haven't listened to our community, and it's 
taking that approach to everything we do, I think is so, so important. And I think that's what differentiates the good companies from the great companies. And it's something we take a lot of pride in is bragging about the changes. And even if you can't tell from your naked eye, just knowing what the changes we've made are and knowing kind of the impact it's been able to have has been really important. And I'll give you an example. One is with our pick line cover, we have a patented mesh window that allows for breathability and visibility to the pick line site. And in the early days, we made it really dark and black kind of and pick line cover by the way think of it as like a runner arm brand or a compression sleeve without the compression is probably the easiest way to describe it if you don't know what i'm saying and to your point if you don't you can also just go to karenware.com to learn more but i think the feedback we heard from some of the nurses was we wish that it was a little more transparent so that we could see through it a little more easily and be able to make sure that there's no leakage or infection. And so we worked with our factory. We changed the composition of the mesh. We changed the thickness of it. From the naked eye, it doesn't look that much different. But for the nurses, it made a profound difference in their ability to see through while you're lying on a bed and be able to know if there's a massive problem or not. You know, when you think about the time that that was able to sell, save for the clinicians, the impact it was able to have on a hospital system perspective, while for the patient still maintaining that improved patient experience, it was a win-win for everyone. And it's something we wouldn't have even known to do if we didn't have that attitude of, yes, we know this is better than the sock, but what else can we make better about this? That's super smart. And again, just to reiterate, you said you told them it was all beta. Did you say beta or you just said, hey, I mean, anyone who's doing any product right now, especially if you're starting, just tell them, hey, you know, we're open to any feedback. But you have to keep emphasizing that to them because then they'll probably forget. Because I think other people will forget that. They're like, well, I told them if we wanted something changed right when I gave it to them and they never said anything. Well, you have to keep doing it. You have to keep letting them know that. Yeah, we have like surveys built in for a lot of our customers. For our online customers, every single person that buys from us gets a survey sent to them. For our other accounts, we're talking to them so frequently that we're getting real-time feedback. And then we institute surveys for their patients and clinicians as well to just make sure we're keeping that feedback loop going. Well, yeah, because it's funny that, again, you mentioned that Google had beta forever. I've actually started using the Brave browser after I heard how much Google's collecting on me. I don't know if you've heard of the Brave browser, but even on there, they have Brave and then they have beta still on it, even though I think it's been a browser for maybe four or five years or something like that. So they're kind of doing that exact same thing. It's showing, hey, everything's not perfect yet, although it seems like it pretty much is. But them just identifying that, like I'm open to, hey, if it screws up a little bit more, I understand it's still kind of newer, right? And the same thing with your company or whatever you're building, whether it's an actual product or, you know, a software type of product that by having that in there or letting them know, I think that helps a lot, gives a lot of leadway. And then they all realize just by you having that in your title or whatever with the beta that this company's probably open to feedback. Yeah, exactly. And every account we talk to, whether it's a one hospital system or almost 200 hospital system, we really talk about the importance of innovation and improvement. And honestly, everyone wants that, right? Like, if you're a buyer, you want to hear that a company is willing to say, hey, this can be better and we're counting on you. And that allows all of our customers to know that we're not just selling to them, but we're true partners and we're looking to innovate together. Well, cool. Well, let's go ahead and dive into your story. Thank you for that overall input. And hopefully that helps some people there just even thinking that way. But let's go ahead and start. Where do you want to start in your story? 
You tell me. Do you want me to go from the early days? Oh, yeah. I guess. How about you coming out of college? Uh, tell us where you went and then what you do coming out. Totally. So I'm a proud University of Virginia alum. I graduated from the comm school where I did finance and management and majored in Spanish and was really intrigued by consulting. They kind of pitched it as, hey, you're going to be 22 years old, get to tell Fortune 500 CEOs how to run their companies, and you're going to stay in Ritz's everywhere. My first project was in Rockford, Illinois, where there was definitely no Ritz, but I couldn't believe that someone was willing to pay for me to travel to Rockford four days a week and help them try and solve their problems. And we were looking at how to grow across America for the client and got to do a lot of growth strategy work all over the world. I actually spent three months in Peru and then was asked by my firm to go to Africa. And I learned afterwards that it was by myself, but got an incredible experience of working with a global telecom provider in Africa for three months. And throughout the experience, I really loved the aspect of finding a problem and trying to solve it. And I think over and over, it just played out where every two to three months, I'd be on a new client, new industry with a new problem and be trying to solve it. But what I realized is, while I love that, I also love seeing those problems solved and actually executing on the solution. And so Decided to go back to business school, went to the University of Chicago, Booth School of Business. And there I really got into entrepreneurship. Now, you know, just like many kids, I sold lemonade growing up. I did car washes. I even tried to sell a snake bitten tennis ball, which unfortunately no one paid us $4.50 for the price of admission to see the snake bitten tennis ball. But at the least we were trying. I raised money for Jump Rope for Heart. I don't know if you ever did that growing up, but I'm still a very good jump roper. It's probably the only thing in a gym that I can do well and got to help fight heart disease at the same time. And I think through all those experiences, I had always been intrigued by entrepreneurship. And then at Booth, I got to participate in the new venture challenge where you actually build a company and start to try and build that out and learned a lot of important lessons. My team was four guys that ended up in finance. None of us knew how to code, and yet we were trying to build our own app and realize the importance of having a core competency in what you're doing, not having to rely on others as for your company, I realized was super important. And then even things like how to motivate each other. We had split our equity evenly. We did not have any vesting periods or anything like that. And so when we had one of the guys not really pulling his weight, there was really nothing we could do. If we had fired him, he still would have owned a quarter of the company. And I also realized like, hey, you need to have some sort of decision-making tree and process in place. And those were really, really important lessons for me to be prepared for when I was building Karenware. And so left Chicago and came back to New York to work for Goldman. I had as a consultant, always seen firsthand that they, the clients always would go to their bankers after we would give them any sort of M&A advice and ask them for the exact same analysis and realize like, hey, I want to be the first person that the CEO calls and no better place to do that than Goldman in their tech media telecom group. And so went there, had a good two years where sleep was definitely on the short. In fact, there was one week where I pulled an all-nighter for a week straight which did not think was possible until I did it. And you had cocaine? I did not, actually. Never. I didn't even drink caffeine. I'm the one person in America that no coffee, no sushi. So I just drank a lot of water. Literally would drink a new bottle of water every 30 minutes to an hour. 
obviously had to spend a lot of time getting rid of that water in the bathroom, but that's kind of what kept me awake and able to survive those hours. But more importantly, I think it prepares you because you realize in banking about 9 billion things, quote unquote, go wrong every single time. And I think you realize that just because those 9 billion things have gone wrong, the world still hasn't ended afterwards. And so you get a lot better under stress. And I think it really helps prepare me for building my own company and dealing with the uncertainty. It also taught me like, hey, if I need to, again, I haven't had to pull an all-nighter for a week straight, but realizing that if I'm going to have to pull a late night or wake up early, it's not the end of the world. And that has helped dramatically. And then also just kind of giving you the contacts, both from a finance standpoint to other organizations, to their alumni database is pretty profound. And so being able to meet pretty incredible people to even a couple of days ago, I was actually at the John Mayer concert at MSG that they took me to. And so it's just been an incredible opportunity to prepare myself to eventually build my own company. So what was the hardest thing that you had to work on while you were at Goldman Sachs? That, and obviously you said you stayed up for a week straight without some nose sugar somehow, but also like, yeah. yeah, I'm just really wondering what type of things did you work on? What was the hardest stuff that you had to go through there before we move on to you starting Karenware? Yeah, totally. I think there's actually, it's a great question. I think there's two answers to that. It's probably the coolest client and like the coolest work I did and the least exciting work I did. And the reason for that is passion and enthusiasm and what drives you. So for me, I've never been one that's been driven by money. I've always been driven by excitement and vision and mission and being able to make a difference in the world. Regardless of what the bonus structure, et cetera, has been in companies, that's never really made me do what I want to do. And I think at Goldman, I had two clients, one we were trying to sell and one that we were helping take public. And the company we were helping take public is a company by the name of Cvent, had 14 co-founders and was just so amazing while we were helping them prepare for their S1 to just see the energy, the enthusiasm, the passion for what they had built and what they were building. And they have been built event management software. They've gone public twice now. After they went public, they went private again. So it's been a really interesting story. And they almost died because of the dot-com bubble. So they had raised a ton of money. Then the financial downturn died pretty much to like a dollar in their bank account and then came back and now are one of the most successful companies out there. And it was so inspiring to hear their stories every day and to just see what they were building. And that honestly is what caused me to say, I need to go build something great was after seeing those 14 guys and obviously the thousands of people they have since hired. But well, what was the name of the company again? Cvent. How do you spell that? C-V-E-N-T. It's event management software. So they basically empower all the conferences that you likely go to both, well, at least back then online and through apps. It's really taken off recently. It seems like everything I go to now is run by Cvent, which is really cool to see. So that was difficult because everything mattered so much, right? Like these were the initial founders. They were still in the business. They were so passionate about it. We would stay up super late drafting stuff. And by the end of it, I got known as the comma splice guy because I think the night before we were filing, I was finding all these grammatical things at like three in the morning. And two of their senior executives were like, if you find one more, I'm gonna, we're going to shut you up for good. 
blah, blah, blah. But they were really good at appreciating the work. They emailed the head of our group just to let him know and called him several times to let them know how great I was doing and how passionate I was and how they appreciated that, etc. And I think that that just motivated me further. But it was high stakes because if anything happened, like if you screwed up anything, it could directly impact their IPO. Right. So just to clarify for everybody, when you're working with them, you're just making sure everything's good to go for them to become a public company. Like you're looking at their financials and putting together. Is that what you're actually doing for them here in this role? Yeah. In that role, we were basically creating the story to help take them public. So they had decided to go public. They had an accounting firm that was going through all the numbers to make sure. And we were working with them all to make sure the story was there, make sure we could get them the best valuation possible, but also make sure that investors felt that they were getting, they were going to be part of something extraordinary. Okay. And what was the other company that you were going to discuss? Yeah. The other one was, I don't want to say the name, but it was a company that had a massive NOL, but their business had pretty much died. What's an NOL? Sorry, net operating loss. So it was a company that had been worth a lot of money at one point and then had their business had kind of blown up. They used to be like the main CD label maker, for example, and obviously no one uses CDs anymore. So that business kind of went haywire. They had a bunch of factories still. They had a bunch, like they had all these operating losses that an acquirer could take on. Because of tax laws, there's only so much of that that can get transferred to the acquirer. And so you had to find a really tax-efficient strategy to try and buy the company. And it was fascinating and difficult because it was a company that wasn't really making much anymore. And so it wasn't a top priority for most people, but it still employed lots of people and people's jobs were at risk and trying to help them find someone that could help them become a fast growing company again was really important. And it was something I took super personally and ended up going on a two week roadshow in Asia with them to show off all their factories and try and help sell the company. And just got to know the management team really, really well in both cases and worked with the board really closely there. And in that time, basically just trying to sell the company to someone that, again, where you're maximizing value for the shareholders, but you're also being able to get it somewhere where it can blossom and continue to grow. So that company that made CD labels, I imagine the sticky ones that go on it and like the inserts or whatever, is that what? Yep. You're saying they own multiple factories around the world just to do this? Like, that's how big they were? That's kind of crazy to me to even fathom that. I mean, I would just, I imagine they might have one factory, but they're this big back then that you're saying that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, think about like, I mean, remember when, like, what kind of computer do you use right now? I'm a PC guy. I'm smart. Yeah. So <laughs> what's it called? So if you, for example, remember back in the day, like all of Microsoft Office was on CDs when you would buy your computer, like if you're using an HP, for example. Oh, so like, even the thin ones that went on the Microsoft yeah. one. Okay. So I'm thinking of like the CD labelers that you'd print off on your home printer and just put it on there. Oh, no. They did all the professional stuff. Oh, okay. So that makes a lot more sense to me. Okay. So literally every single computer CD needed like the yes. super thin specialized one. Okay. Yeah, that definitely helps. Yeah. So they're, I mean, they were a massive business and it was... What did you say you learned from them? I just learned, I think you learn empathy, you learn like 
how to really fight for everyone, not just the fast growing companies. Like everyone always wants to be a part of just the coolest, fastest growing company out there. And this is something that's a dying business. Obviously, it's something that no one really foresee happening. The team hadn't been able to successfully find a new way to build the business and being able to really try and save jobs and maximize that net operating loss from a tax benefit standpoint was super important. And I think it was also important lesson for me that, hey, you still got to bring your best, even if it's something that isn't as interesting, right? Like for the IPO stuff, that was fascinating. For someone that wanted to become an entrepreneur, that was really exciting and cool. And this was something that it was just as important to bring my A-game to as the IPO stuff. And so how long did you stay at Goldman Sachs till? So I left there in 2013. And then I spent one year in between Goldman and Karen Ware running, helping run a startup trying to solve parking. So they were trying to help you be able to reserve your parking in advance. I was employee number 11 when I, 10 or 11, when I quit, there were 30 on the team. And I just realized parking's not what gets me up and out of bed every day. And especially living in New York, where I don't even have a car, it wasn't something that I was ever going to really need. A lot of people start a business and they think they own their own brand, yet they don't. If you don't have a trademark, you could get sued for infringement. Imagine spending all that money on building someone else's brand, then getting sued by them for infringement. Trademark Factory is the only company in the entire world that has a true 100% money-back guarantee and one flat fee that handles everything from start to finish with unlimited legal team hours. And as an entrepreneur, you have enough on your plate already. Growing and operating your business without having to add the complicated legal process of getting a registered trademark. So, Trademark Factory makes it easy for you by taking that off your plate and doing the hard work for you. Their flat fee covers everything from start to finish with a flat fee, unlimited legal team hours, and backed by their money back guarantee. Let them do the legal work so you can focus your attention where it's needed most, your business. They'll get the job done or your money back. And all you have to do is wait for your trademark certificate in the mail. That's it. So to request a free consultation call with one of Trademark Factory's strategic advisors, use the following link, tmf.rocks forward slash millionaire. That's tmf.rocks forward slash millionaire. Energetic Austin here. And if you're a product manager, innovator, or a startup business person like me, you know how hard it is to be sure your next big idea will be a hit. In fact, 85% of new products fail. And a huge reason for all that failure is that it's just too hard to validate product market fit with consumers. Old style market research is too slow, too complicated, and too expensive for fast moving teams trying to build something great. But what if you could test out your product ideas with target consumers whenever you want, before you put all the time and money into development? That's what startups and Fortune 500 companies do with Feedback Loop. Get quality feedback from their target customers early and often. Feedback Loop is the test before you invent product research platform. It's got expert templates for concept testing, user discovery, prioritizing features on your roadmap, and a lot more. 
You can create your own test in minutes and get back quality insights from your target consumers in hours. And if you go to go.feedbackloop.com forward slash millionaire, you'll get three full tests for free. So if you want your next product or feature to be a hit, test before you invest. Build based on data, not opinion, and launch with confidence with Feedback Loop. Makes sense. I was going to ask if that was one of the reasons because we had talked about having needing passion and excitement in order to keep doing it. So when you left Goldman Sachs, you obviously were making good money there. And then you joined the parking company, right? You joined that. Yep. Parking Panda. Yeah. And so did you not make any money doing that? They paid me a decent salary and had equity and all that. So it was a very attractive offer. And I kind of done that math where it was If I stayed too long at Goldman, I would get the golden handcuffs and didn't want those and felt like this was an opportunity to test out whether being at a startup made sense or not for me. Okay. And so when you left, were you still thinking you wanted to do your own business or do another business or were you thinking, well, yeah, what exactly, what were you thinking? Yeah. So I actually started working on Karenware before I left Parking Panda. I was spending nights, weekends, et cetera, working on it, living the true entrepreneur dream of not sleeping ever, and ended up actually getting on the... Katie Couric had her own TV show on ABC, and she had offered to feature us. So when that happened at the end of April, that's kind of when I was like, hey, you know, this is real. This is a real company. This is no longer just a side project for my loved ones. Either I need to do this full-time or I need to hire people to do this full-time. And It was just something that I was a lot more passionate about. And I kind of talked to a bunch of my mentors and said, this is something that makes sense for me to try and start. And you were the sole owner or did you have any partners? So I was the leading guy. I had a couple other people involved. And then we ended up getting investors nine months in and then built out an advisory board as well. And those advisors in the early days were super helpful and basically part employees as well. And then hired my first person in 2017. So literally three years after you started, huh? Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's good to hear. So can you walk us through like the very first year? Because we had talked about how I guess you were still working at that other company before you left uh, Parking Panda, but just tell us about the first year of you doing your own business, being totally in control, what mistakes you made or what learning opportunities we might have from your story. I think one of the most important things I did in the early days is when I built that advisory board, I used them to keep myself, to force myself to kind of have people to report to, if you will. So gave them a weekly email update of the progress I had made. And believe me, a weekly email update is really scary on Wednesday if you haven't made that much progress. And so that enabled me to continue to do a lot of outreach, to continue to make a lot of progress and push things forward. Well, real quick, I love that. And that's the reason I want to ask more detail on that. Did you tell them you were going to do that? I did not commit to it. I just started doing it and then realized that it was beneficial for both me and as a way to keep them engaged and so started doing it. And then as I added on more, I let them know, oh yeah, I send a weekly update, et cetera. And when you send it, do you send it to each one individually or are you like copying everybody one? It's a good question. For the most part, I was putting all the official advisors on one email. And just sending it to yourself. Yeah. And then they would reply individually to me. And then I would spend a lot of time talking to them about what I've learned, what are the things that, what are the issues, what are the things that are going well, et cetera. And you did this for how long? Until I hired people. So for over three years. 
Okay, because I'm going to ask you more about this, if you don't mind. So how do you stay committed to keep doing that? That's what I was trying to get to. I mean, this sounds like a fantastic idea. I feel like maybe if I was in your position, maybe I- It's a long time. Yeah, a lot of people would quit. Yeah, I might sporadically start doing it, realize it helps, but then I'm the owner, quote unquote, but I'm not- I don't have to answer to my boss. If I have a boss who says I have to do it, then I'm more motivated to do it. I think for me, at least this is one of those things that's hard to keep myself going and doing it. So do you have any ideas on how to keep yourself motivated to keep doing that? I think that's why I was saying it's so important to find something that you care a lot more about than anything else and that money is not the driving motivation. So for me, again, it was truly to help my loved ones. And so I was being driven no matter what to do this because it was those around me were suffering and this was a way to try and help them. And I think that that was my biggest driver was, hey, these patients, like at the beginning, it was cancer patients. These cancer patients are going through such an incredibly difficult ordeal. They have no way of getting support. They're told to wear a sock on their arm. Why can't I do something better? And if they're not going to give up, I'm not going to give up. And I think that's, and again, this is something yet that sounds just as cheesy, but like, I was blessed to get to know so many inspiring people that were fighting for their lives and still having a positive outcome. And the more and more people that I met and talked to, and they were like, yeah, I have cancer, but I'm still, you know, working or I'm still going on this trip or going on this hike or whatever. It makes you realize that the problems that I was facing, for example, really weren't that big of a deal, right? Like, oh, am I going to have a mango or a watermelon today as compared to hey, am I going to survive chemo today, right? I think that gave me such a different perspective on life and it enabled me to see I can never give up and I have to build a company that we will always do whatever it takes. And I mean, I've been talking to one of our investors recently and he even said that as we've started growing, he's been like, look, one of the most amazing things is that you're never willing to give up and you will never stop and you have that crazy motivation. And it's kind of been instilled in me since I was a kid. My parents are immigrants, moved to the U.S. with no money. They ended up becoming very successful. My sister and I were able to go to private school growing up and then went to great colleges. And they really helped prepare us to see that. My mom had skipped three grades growing up. My dad did really well in his job. We always had an environment where failure wasn't an option and working your tail off was the solution anytime you encountered a problem. Makes sense. But I guess one more thing before we move on from this is that, did you have any like visual reminders, whether maybe you did have a sock by your computer or maybe you had something on a screenshot on your desktop or did you have like Outlook reminders or anything like that? Again, I'm just trying to think of what else might be helpful to anyone who wants to keep motivated to keep doing it or you didn't need any of that. I think like creating like tasks and stuff is really helpful in terms of the nitty gritty. Like now even I put tasks on my calendar. We use HubSpot as our CRM now. I have tasks like set to me so I don't forget to reach out to certain people, etc. Back then, I in terms of like actual product and all that, when I would have a prototype, I would have it around me. But honestly, I didn't need it because I knew I wanted to make like this was something that was really important to me. And it was something that I kind of felt I absolutely had to do. And so it wasn't like the motivation was actually never the issue for me for Karenware. And that's honestly how I knew that it was probably the right idea and company for me it was because it was one of those things that no matter how sick or not you were, you still wanted to do it. Is there anything else you think of maybe during your first year that could help anyone listening? 
Yeah, it's you can't be afraid to email people and call them or try and get in touch. I mean, when I first started, I talked to over a thousand people about the product and the idea and continued to get their feedback. I have been able to get in front of incredible people through cold emails. We're using a CRM then because again, I know you're by yourself. I was not. No. Yeah, fair. So when I started, I was using Microsoft Excel and Google Sheets to track everything and creating kind of my own quote unquote CRM where I would just update. At the beginning, I had one column, which just had the last contact. And then I realized like that's not super helpful. And so I started adding more columns of every contact, et cetera. So it was really bad and very poorly done. I think now... Well, real quick, sorry. That's perfect because that's exactly how I started off. And I think that's almost how anyone starts off with contacting people. You know, just taking that time and then realizing over time, you're like, okay, there's better systems. But if you start off even with the CRM and you've never had your own company, you might not understand how it all works. I mean, even if the simplest one... I think there's one called Simple CRM. There's, you know, thousands of CRMs now, but even HubSpot's an easy one. But yeah, you started off with something simple and easy. Since you were your own company, since you were the only guy in the company for the first three years, I feel like there's all these little nuanced things that I think might help people who are listening now. So that's the reason I'm asking about it. Totally. And I think what I was just trying to say is now I actually think that you can get pretty impressive CRMs for free, which wasn't the case when I was trying to build it. And so that's why I did the homegrown. But now there's so many productivity tools, et cetera, that are either free or relatively cheap. Basically, what you want to do, I mean, every penny counts. And we still kind of run Karenware that way, even though we're much bigger, is really being thoughtful about what you're spending and where you're spending it. And I think that for me, that was... One of the biggest learnings was be willing and able to really prioritize where you're spending. And if you're not spending on a tap, like I knew I was motivated. And so I knew that I didn't necessarily need a CRM in the early days because I knew that I was going to open up that sheet and pick up where I left off every single time. You know, there's one thing that I've noticed when I was using my Google Sheets or whatever, when I was updating old podcast episodes or whatever. There's some power in seeing a spreadsheet. If you just go back in there, scroll down, and you see maybe you contacted everyone above there, the last 200 people or something within the last week. There's some power like, oh, I'm making progress versus some systems are so simple. It's like I found that at least for myself. So this is just things to keep in mind, again, for anyone who's kind of getting started or whatnot. So who are the people you're contacting, those thousand people? A lot of nurses. So I was cold calling nurses. So I would basically pick a city and then call every hospital and try and get in touch with every pick line nurse in the early days. Are you emailing them or calling them? Back then, I didn't have their emails. So I was literally just picking up the phone and dialing. We used to joke in college, I used to do fundraising for UVA. And I would joke dialing for dollars. And that was basically what I was doing each and every day. Okay. So yeah, because I mean, that's a hard thing for people to do, especially now. I feel like it's so impossible to get ahead of, you know, a hold of anybody. But all right. So you weren't scared to do that. Again, you're showing that you're you know brave enough to smile and dial. Oh, I hate it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I hate it. But if I'm not going to do it, then no one else is going to do it. And I think that's the other thing about being a founder is you have to lead by example. And when I was at Parking Panda, I remember like meetings getting postponed because the CEO didn't want to be available for a client call. And we signed a deal with Major League Baseball that took an extra six months for that reason. And I kind of had made a deal with myself that whenever I did something, I would make sure that I do it. 
Like I still cold call hospitals today. Like I'm in the weeds with the team. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not as in the weeds on every single thing as I used to be. But I think it's really important that everyone remembers where you're coming from and that you're willing and able to get your hands dirty with people too. Makes sense. All right. And I guess as you're growing, is there any other lessons that you can think of over the first couple of years, not even after the first year? Yeah, I think one thing that everyone hates talking about and I hate it the most because I'm really bad at it is hiring and firing. Like recruiting sucks. It's a terrible process for everyone. And especially in a startup, every hire, especially in the early days, is so key and so important. And so it's making sure you find the right people. And if they aren't the right people, being willing to make a change. And I think that that's something that's taken me a long time to get comfortable with. And I think it's just making sure you have the right person at the right time. Like the person you hire today might not be the right person two years from now, and that's okay. And so being on top of that, I think is important. The other thing I think that's really important is, I mean, from the nitty gritty, it's like creating a to-do list for yourself every day. I, to your point of seeing that you've accomplished something, if you write things on paper and then you get to cross it off or put it in a Word doc or whatever, and you get to erase it, however, whatever you want to do, but that there's something to that power of being able to see that you did something that day, which I think is really important. And then it's not being afraid to get it wrong. Like when we first came out with our first pick cover, I will never forget the meeting with the Hopkins team. And they're like, this is cool. We would never use it. And I was just like, did I just waste a year of my life? on this and they basically said yes <laughs> yeah no they were like well we wouldn't use it for x y and z reason and that enabled me to end up building the mesh window that allowed for the breathability and visibility to the pick line site was because they said that we need breathability and visibility and being growing up in baltimore everyone has a lacrosse stick. And so I was like, oh, maybe if we had like the mesh of a lacrosse stick, but make it cooler and like thinner fiber and all that as a window, would that work? And they were like, yeah, that would actually make it something we would absolutely want. And I think it's not being afraid to realize like, hey, you can take what is a quote unquote negative and turn that into a positive. How do you find that first manufacturer? Dumb luck was a friend of a friend's dad was on that guy's board and he was a five times entrepreneur. He and I kind of just hit it off and we've unfortunately overgrown them. And so we don't work with them anymore, but him and I are still in touch and he actually lives in Florida. So the past few times that I've been down there with my family, he always makes a point to come and see me. And he taught me a lot too about manufacturing and letting me learn on the job and being willing to be patient with us. I think our payment terms on the first order I gave him was probably like had to pay him back in a year, basically. So he was really all about helping us and believing in us. He actually went to a couple hospital meetings with me, like true team partnership and player, which was great. What did you learn about manufacturing? It sucks. Now, it's incredibly complicated and realizing that there's you always need to build in delays. You need to really be very thoughtful in terms of what you're sharing with the factory. The first product I made, someone that was working with me basically created a PDF document of just one picture with one measurement. Now, when we send what we call a tech pack to a factory, it's a multi-tab Excel document with every, what's it called? Literally every sort of kind of measurement possible 
which I think is amazing. And it makes sense, right? If you're not in person with them, if you can give specific directions on every single measurement, it's really hard to screw it up. Whereas if you just give them a picture with one measurement, it's something that they might get that one measurement, but they might not have another measurement the way you want it. So just being as detailed as possible and then all about the communication with them. And I mean, communication is key with everyone, but with factories, especially in Asia, in the early days, if you're not the one bringing them millions of dollars, the only way that they're going to want to get to know you and work with you is if you really get to know them and build that relationship with them. So not only was I meeting the CEO in Florida and talking to him every week, if not every day, excuse me, I actually went to China and visited our first factory in person and got to meet the team and took pictures with them, et cetera, which was really fun and exciting. And when they made the prototype at first, did they make you a simple prototype that you brought to those doctors after the first year? And then you... Yeah, I ended up having to do 12 iterations of it before it was ready for prime time. And how long did that take? It took a year. A year. So by the end of year two, you still hadn't really started selling it. Yeah, we launched, I think our first sale was a pre-sale in March of 2015. So for you, uh, as far as living expenses, have you just saved up enough money? Because you are in New York this whole time too, right? Yes, I'd saved money. I was living incredibly cheaply. I was enjoying free meals courtesy of WeWork. And you had a roommate, you said, right? Had a roommate. And you're selling yourself for sexual favors in order to keep the company going? Yeah. I don't think people would probably, I don't think anyone would ever pay me for that. <laughs> you pay yourself. <laughs> yeah. I was eating a lot of Easy Mac, just was living as cheap as possible. I was very, I mean, I'm really fortunate and blessed to have incredible people around me. My parents were kind of always saying, if it doesn't work, don't worry, we got your back. My friends, when we would go out free, I mean, it's comical, but a lot of them that ended up investing in our first round, for example, would we go out for drinks and they would all take turns buying drinks saying, hey, we don't want you spending our like the company's money on drinks. We got you. That can also ruin you, though, because you're like, hey, I got to go back to work. And they're like, no, we're investors in you. We want you to stay out. And so we're forcing you to stay out. So we had a lot of comical jokes about that back in the day where I'm notorious for trying to go home by midnight and people wanting me to stay out after. Well, speaking of your parents, you said they immigrated. Where did they come from? Yeah, they are from India. So born and raised in India, went to school there and then came to the U.S. That's pretty amazing, too, that your parents, a lot of immigrants, it seems like they want their kids to be doctors or lawyers, right? Something safe versus they said, don't worry about it if you can't make it. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> My mom's an anesthesiologist. She would love for me to still go to med school. <laughs> yeah, you can still go back. No, I think. What's amazing, and my parents are two incredible human beings that they've always been super supportive, even if they didn't necessarily agree with the decision, like they've always wanted me to be able to live my life. So when I was ready to quit Goldman and looking around, they just wanted to make sure that I was as thoughtful as possible and finding the right opportunity. And then same with Karen, where I mean, my dad still literally these days is reaching out to factories on behalf of our product team and getting to know them. My parents both are always trying to sell our products. It's a true family affair. My little sister is an advisor for the company and helps us with a lot of our legal stuff. I think it's really cool that you get to build a true family business. And I joke with everyone on our team, and then they realize that I'm not joking, that they're all going to get to know my family really well when they join us because my family is involved and wants us to be successful and will do whatever it takes to do that. And 
they're all, at least to my face, very grateful for that and able to run stuff by them, which is really great for everyone. Do they also live in New York City? No, my parents are in Baltimore and then my sister's now in Tennessee. Yeah, well, I appreciate you being a Patreon. Uh, no worries, man. I, I came across the podcast a few weeks ago and I definitely uh, enjoy them. So uh, I wanted to at least show my commitment and at the amount that you, uh, it costs, I, I wanted to go for the highest tier. So, yeah, well, I appreciate that. So, were you just Googling like a looking for another podcast and yours popped up? And I was like, well, let me check this out. And then, you know, I listened to one and I love how in depth and detail the first one I listened to was the uh, mining key guy. Oh, that was a good one. That was a good one to start off with. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm in the franchising, okay, right? Perfect. So, well, I'm in a franchise. I definitely, uh, it definitely was a good one to start off. And um, I like the questions that you ask. You know, you hold them to numbers. And so I think I've listened to maybe 60 in the last three weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, you've been binging. As far as like episodes, what's been one of your favorite? The Meineke guy. The Meineke, yeah. You really did start <laughs> yeah. off with, I thought so too. Yeah. I've been telling yeah. everyone how great that one was. And, and and he's one of the main reasons I joined the Patreon too. I was like, man, I got to hear the end of his story. It took, <laughs> it took me a couple of weeks, but uh, yeah, I was like, yeah, I got to hear the end of his story. So if you want to hear that episode with Charles Bonfiglio, go check out episode 165. Well, I know I focus a lot on the early couple of years here and I appreciate all your, you know, willing to put up with my detailed questions on it. But I guess even over the last few years after you started hiring people and everything, is there anything you think we could learn from that? Yeah, I think it's when you find great people letting go and letting them run with stuff. I think most founders and CEOs do a really poor job of delegating and letting go. And I think my philosophy is if I found someone that's better at this than I am, then why shouldn't I let them run with it? And I'm still not necessarily doing the best job of that, but I'm still kind of learning every day and doing whatever I can to let people do that. And I think that it's really important to empower your team and to provide opportunities for them to grow. And one of our employees has had four different roles in the past four years. We've had people being able to get promoted very quickly, like being able to celebrate the amazing work that your team does is so important. And it's something that we continue to want to do a better job on and be able to kind of all grow together, right? Like I'm a first time CEO, definitely not perfect. And a lot of my team are first times in their roles. And so all of us learning together and doing even more together, I think is really important. And so what's been the hardest part about growing Karenware? Hardest part is probably still just driving awareness. I mean, the number one thing I always hear is, I wish I knew about you earlier. And it's cool when you hear that, because that means that they like you. But it's also like, man, I wish you had too. And it's continuing to pound that in and try and get as much awareness as we can to as many people as possible. So I guess maybe if someone's listening who's good at marketing or has any insight, maybe they should contact you. I don't know if that'd be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. We're always hiring at karenware.com. And yeah, love to talk to anyone. I just randomly thought about that. It always helps when you have random people thinking, or maybe they have an in on there, you know, a better way for you to get your brand out there. So now that we're wrapping up the interview, I guess I was going to ask for your, your contact info or email or something that someone could reach out and say, thank you for doing the interview. Or again, maybe give you some insight or marketing thoughts or ideas of, you know, how you can grow your brand. Yeah, absolutely. The best email for that is probably wecare at karenware.com. That was my proudest moment in the early days was coming up with that email address. And that actually goes to our entire team. So everyone will see that. 
Perfect. Well, thanks again for coming on and sharing your story. I don't know if you have any last thoughts for everybody, but I really appreciate again all the details that you gave and you know the early years and whatnot. But is there any one last thoughts you have for anyone who's listening now? The last thing I would say is if it's something that you're passionate about it, you can do it and don't listen to all the naysayers too much. If you really believe in something, there's always ways to make it work. And we've been able to do that with Karenware and excited to help support the next generation of entrepreneurs. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Are you looking for more product-based interviews? Well, I got you. Here's five awesome suggestions just for you. Try episode 135 with Jim Kalb of OptiFuse or an old favorite, episode 24 with Starfire Direct. Another one, try episode 127. That's 127 with Doug Booten, the founder of Halo Top Ice Cream, which I'm sure you've seen in your local supermarket. Another oldie but goodie, episode 34 with Don DiCostenza of Pedigo Electric Bikes. And last but not least, the touching story in episode 98 with Ann Head. And hey, while you're exploring our awesome back catalog of episodes, why don't you consider becoming a Patreon member? We've got secret Patreon episodes in the product industry, like Patreon episode number 29, where I interviewed the founder of Fatheads, or Patreon episode 3, where I talked with Rick Martinez about succeeding in the cannabis industry. Just check your notes below on how to get these secret episodes right now.